Amen. Thank you, Pastor Andrew. Well, good morning, church. How are you? That was weak. How are you? Awesome. Thankful. I'm thankful to be with you. Thankful that we're together again. Uh, We are continuing our teaching series through Paul's letter to the Ephesians this morning. This morning, we officially hit the halfway mark. We're halfway through this letter, halfway through our series. And so, without any delay, I just want to invite you to open your Bibles, to boot up your devices, to turn, to scroll, to follow along on the screens, uh, but to read with me what Paul writes in the second half of chapter 3, beginning with verse 14. He says this, "'For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of His glory He may grant you to be strengthened with power through His Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to Him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think, According to the power at work within us, to Him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. Church, this is the Word of the Lord. Amen? Sometimes I think that it's helpful to approach a passage of Scripture, to study it, to process it with another complementary passage of Scripture kind of set as background, as a backdrop. And so, as we jump into the second half of Ephesians 3, um, I want to kind of lay in the background of our mind Paul's letter to… Paul's words in another letter that he wrote while he was in prison… Uh, to the Philippians. And in Philippians chapter 3, in in verses 8 and 10, uh, Paul says this, and this is helpful for our passage this morning. He says, "'Indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord.'" The surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. "'For His sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish.'" in order that I may gain Christ, that I may know Him. So, Paul talks so highly about knowing Christ Jesus as Lord and suffering the loss of all things that He might know Him. And we could ask, like, what is it, what does that mean exactly? What is he referring to, the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus, His Lord, our Lord? I think in our churches today, uh, we tend to either fall on one or another side of kind of a fine line. Um, different churches have different feels, and, and some churches are very focused on, on doctrine, uh, on the Word, 
on expository teaching. Sometimes those churches can feel like very cerebral, uh, maybe even sometimes just uh, bordering on very intellectual. Other churches on the other side of that line might um, really value pursuing God and His presence and the working of spiritual gifts and strongly emphasize experiencing God. Does that make sense? And so, sometimes we, 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 we perceive this, what I would suggest is a, is a false dichotomy between the knowledge of God and the experience of God, and I submit that what we see in Paul's writing to the Philippians and what we particularly see in his prayer this morning in Ephesians chapter 3 is that those two things are not mutually exclusive. When Paul says that he has counted everything as lost for the surpassing worth of, worth of knowing Christ Jesus his Lord, when he says that he has suffered the loss of all things and he counts them as rubbish, that he may gain Christ, that he may know Him, he is not just talking about knowing about Christ, about knowing doctrine, about knowing God's Word, about knowing the gospel. He is talking about experiencing the gospel, being transformed by the gospel, knowing Christ, loving Christ, being near to Christ, and walking with Christ. It's not just knowledge. It's not just experience. It's both. And so, we look at our passage this morning, and if you look at your notes, I've supplied a very simple outline of Paul's prayer. This passage is a prayer, and uh, Paul is bringing to conclusion the first half of his letter. And this is really important. The first half of his letter, he unfolds, he articulates the, the deep mysteries of God that have been revealed in Jesus Christ, the mysteries of God which have been hidden since eternity past, which have now been revealed in the gospel, in the good news. This great, majestic, glorious, splendid, unparalleled, unfathomable plan of redemption from creation to new creation. And now he is transitioning from all that God has revealed and done and who He is and what He has done on our behalf to how we should live on the basis of that. So, he's transitioning from knowing to living. And he's transitioning with a prayer. He opened this letter with a prayer. And in that prayer, he revealed that God, the Trinitarian God… Some people will say today, hey, you know, the, the, the Bible doesn't talk about the Trinity. Really? Just read Ephesians. In Paul's opening prayer in Ephesians chapter 1, he identifies the Father who chose us in eternity past. He identifies the Son who redeems us in His atonement, and he identifies the Spirit who seals us, who gives us the down payment of our ultimate future salvation. Father, Son, and Spirit at work, and now Paul closes that section with a new prayer as he transitions in this letter. And we can just very simply follow the, 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 the flow of this prayer this way. He prays for three fundamental things, and each of those three things can kind of be unpacked into multiple, multiple other things. But essentially, Paul does this. He, he prays to the Father for this thing, this thing, and this thing, and then in closing, he gives God glory. That's what's going on in this passage. And if you look at the outline uh, in your notes, I've broken this up into kind of five main headings or five main points. And we could just encapsulate, we could summarize this entire Scripture this way, that Paul demonstrates humility before God when he prays to Him, 
And he prays for Christians that they might receive power from God, but not just that they would receive power from God, that they would have an awareness of God and what He's given to them, ultimately culminating that they might experience the fullness of God so that through their lives individually and together as His people, there might be glory given to God. Does that make sense? Look with me at verse 14. Let's walk through the passage. Paul begins, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father. For this reason, those words are familiar. Last week, we saw that in the first half of this chapter, Paul went on a little pastoral personal detour, and he shared his heart with those who he was writing to. You know, he had like this Pauline ADD moment where he was bringing the first half of the letter to conclusion He was about to pray for them, this prayer that we're looking at this morning, but then he had this concern. He went on a sidebar, you know, and because Paul's smarter than me, he didn't forget where he was going. He actually came back, and he begins again with this passage, for this reason. Verse 1 of chapter 3, for this reason. Verse 14, for this reason. And what does he follow that by saying? For this reason what? For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father. I bow my knees. That is an expression of humility. That is a a posture of obedience. You see, what is so amazing about this is Paul is the one that God chose to reveal the mystery of the gospel and take it to the Gentiles, to all the peoples of the earth. And so, he's such an important figure in salvation history, in the Bible. Uh, We're recipients of his mission. We're beneficiaries in a sense. And this man who was chosen by God and given such a profound mission on the heels of unpacking God's majesty in the gospel ends up on his knees. He says from a posture of humility, from a posture of reverence, I bow my knees before the Father. Notice that even though this is a prayer, he doesn't say, I pray for you. Hear this prayer that I intercede with on your behalf. No, he just simply says, I bow my knees before the Father. In our culture today, we kind of have this awareness of parental figures being uh, figures that um, are to cultivate and to, 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 to nourish you know, life to, to raise us, but we've kind of lost a grasp in our culture of the sense of authority that God has built into uh, parental figures. But Paul here is expressing um, submission to the Father, and he's, he's expressing in the most simple but profound way a commitment to obedience. I bow my knees. I'm submitted to you. I obey you. And Paul knows that in the Christian life, obedience begins in the little things. Obedience begins even in the way through our body language, how we posture ourselves before God when we approach Him. Not because He's mean or some divine curmudgeon or He'll only hear our prayers uh, if we approach Him on our knees, but simply because He's worthy. Simply because He's worthy. And so Paul says, for this reason I bow my knees before the Father from whom every, heaven, every family in heaven and on earth is named. And by saying that, he's just emphasizing the cosmic scope of God's reign. That every 
being, spiritually speaking, every spiritual being, every earthly being, everything that has been created, He has created and therefore has a right to name and therefore has dominion and rule and authority over everyone, everything, everywhere. We're going to keep coming back to this, I bow my knees, because three things follow from that. Paul's going to say, I bow my knees that this, and he's going to pray something, that this, and he's going to pray something else, and that this, and he's going to pray something in conclusion. For this reason I bow my knees, look at verse 16, that, this is the first request, I bow my knees before the Father that according to the riches of His glory, He may grant you. When we think of God's glory, what do we think of? We think of the Shekinah glory in the temple. We think of His presence manifested. But when the Bible talks of God's glory, uh, it talks of His holiness. It talks of His majesty. It talks of His uniqueness. There's none other like Him. But especially when the Bible talks of God's glory, the Bible talks of His power, of His might. And here Paul requests that according to the riches of His glory, the, 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 the unfathomable, inexhaustible degree of His glory, of, of His power, of His resources, of who He is, that He might give, that He might grant you, Paul says. He might give. Paul is asking God, Father, I know that You are good. You, you have all authority. You have all the glory. I ask that You would share it with Your people. I ask that You would grant us, grant these Christians, grant us today to be strengthened with what? With power. Power flows from God's glory. Where does Paul ask that we be strengthened with God's power? In our inner being. And how is it exactly that we're strengthened with power in our inner being? How does that power come to us? Yes, through the Spirit. So here Paul prays to the Father that out of the abundance, the, the superabundance of His glory, of His riches, that we would receive power through the Holy Spirit who lives in us as believers, that we would be strengthened in our inner person, in our inner being. This is what the Bible refers to as our heart, our, our engine of moral reasoning, the the place that we make our decisions, that are the seat of our will, our, our inner person. Paul, in another letter, when we think of the inner person, we think of what he's talking about, he says this. He says this in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. He says, with respect to this inner person that he's asking God to strengthen, So we do not lose heart, though our outer self is wasting away, our bodies are are dying, it is inevitable. Our inner self, there it is, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, they're temporary, but the things that are unseen are eternal. And so, 
what we see in 2 Corinthians is very similar to what we see in this passage this morning, that the first major thing that Paul prays for is that out of the abundance of God's glory, through His mediating Spirit who has taken up residence in us, that we would be strengthened in our hearts. Not that we would just kind of man up and white-knuckle it, spiritually speaking, to follow Jesus, but that God's very power, He being the source of that power, would impart, would give, would share His power, His glory with us to strengthen us in our inner being to live this Christian life. That He would strengthen us in our inner being to follow Jesus in our marriages. That He would strengthen us in our inner being by His power to leave sinful patterns behind, to walk in repentance in faith. That He would strengthen us in our inner being to be ministers of the gospel where He has placed us. To be strengthened in our inner being to continue to follow and to continue to be faithful when the culture pushes back. What's so beautiful about this prayer is Paul presupposes God's willingness to share His glorious power. God is generous, and God is willing, and God makes His power available to us. According to the riches of His glory, we be strengthened in our inner being, but also according to the riches of His glory, verse 17, that Christ may dwell in our hearts through faith. Notice that in Paul's first big request here, there's an incredible emphasis on our interior life, on our inner person. First, he asked that God's power would be applied through the Spirit in our inner being, that we would be strengthened internally, internally in our hearts. But now he asks that Christ would dwell, would take, would take up residence in some sense in our hearts through faith. Faith being that means by which Christ more and more and more takes up dwelling in our hearts. Now I have an important theological point to make. <clears throat> kind of in American Christianity, there's this idea that when we come to faith in Jesus, that we ask Him into our heart, and He comes in and lives in our heart. Are you with me? But that's not actually what the Bible says. You see, the Bible says that Jesus died that He was buried, that He was raised, that He appeared, and that He ascended in bodily form, and that He is now presently seated at the right hand of the Father on the cosmic throne, waiting for the time, the moment in salvation history where He will come back to receive us, His church. So we're waiting for His return. He's there. He's not necessarily here. But at salvation, the Holy Spirit does take up residence in our hearts, and so the Spirit of Christ dwells in us insofar as the Holy Spirit has taken up residence in our inner being. So that begs the question that what Paul means when he prays that according to the riches of God's glory, that, that Christ would dwell in our hearts through faith. What does he mean by that? Well, Paul here is just using solidarity language. He's using... Uh, language to describe relation, relational proximity, closeness. Uh, right now, I am here on this stage, and my wife is home in our house with my kids. Hopefully, they're, you know, behaving, uh, not giving her too much of a hard time. I think they're watching the live stream. I love you, babe. Thanks for holding it down at home. So, we're not physically located in the same place, 
But our lives are connected because we're married. We're in covenantal union together. And there is a sense in which, as a married couple, I carry her in my heart. And as we continue to walk together and to persist in our marriage covenant and to grow and to work through difficulties and to mature as one flesh, oneness is at the heart of marriage, that sense of closeness to her in my heart increases. That awareness of, of, our, of, of, of our relational fabric increases in my day-to-day experience. And so what Paul is saying here is that as we're strengthened in our inner person, as God pours into our interior His power, His resources, as, as we continue empowered by Him through the Spirit to walk by faith, to love Jesus, to obey Jesus, to follow Jesus, that He would more and more and more dwell in our hearts richly, that we would have a strong sense of relational proximity to Him through walking with Him that is mediated through the Holy Spirit. Does that make sense? And so Paul prays that we be strengthened, that Christ would dwell in our hearts, and the last part of this first request is that we would be rooted and grounded in love. I'm a guy, so I like simple examples. I like sports analogies, building analogies, things that I understand very easily. And Paul is just, you know, for three chapters, gone way through the rafters in expressing just how majestic and glorious and splendid God is, and how marvelous and unfathomable and unpredictable His plan of salvation is from creation to new creation. Now he just kind of brings the cookies down to the bottom shelf. He makes it very simple for us to understand. I pray that according to His glorious riches, you would be rooted and grounded in what? In love. In the love of Christ, the love which Christ has poured out, the love that we find in Christ, the love that empowers us and fills us to walk with Christ in this life. But he says, I pray that according to God's rich, glorious riches, that that you would be rooted and grounded. Uh, Rooted is an agricultural metaphor, right? It's this idea of planted. In the Old Testament, the prophets spoke of how God being all-powerful and having dominion over all the earthly rulers would just uproot them and, 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 and cast them aside according to His time and purpose, that, that He is sovereign, that He is powerful, that, that, that He uproots those who oppose Him. Jesus in the Gospels talks about you know, the message landing on four different soils, and the fertile soil, the gospel, takes root, right? And the storms, the trials, life happens, it goes down, and, w- and what happens with that life where, where, where the gospel takes root? It remains, it, remain, it's, it remains, it just remains, right? And so Paul prays that we would be rooted in love in the love that's found in Christ, Christ's love for us, that we would discover Christ's love and that we, we would be rooted so deeply in it, that we would find our identity so supremely in it, that when opposition comes, when tragedy strikes, when trials present themselves, when we struggle in our marriages, when we're tempted to sin, 
When the enemy opposes us and tries to entrap us and tries to defeat us, when we face depression, when we face discouragement, when we face all the things in this life which threaten to undermine and short-circuit our faith, Paul prays that our faith would remain because we are rooted deeply in the love of Jesus. But not just that we be rooted in His love. To emphasize and underscore the importance of this, he also says that we be established in love. That's a building metaphor, an agricultural metaphor, a building metaphor. You see, this language harkens back to, you know, laying the foundations for the temples in Israel's history, that, that, that we would be established, that, that our lives would be built upon a solid foundation. What happens to the person who builds his life on solid ground? who establishes his life on the rock. The waves come, what happens? He remains. They remain. Paul prays that we be rooted, that we be established, that our lives would be built on the firm foundation of love, the love that is in, of, and through, sourced in Jesus Christ. What a powerful prayer. So he bows his knee before the Father that we would receive power and love from God. More love, more power. More love, more power, more of you in my life. But Paul doesn't just pray that we would receive these things. He doesn't just pray that we would receive power, that we would be rooted and grounded in love. He doesn't just pray that Christ would make his dwelling in our hearts. He also prays starting in verse 18, that we would have a profound awareness of God. Not just that we would receive, but that we would know, like Paul says, that we would experience, that we would feel, that we would perceive, that we would apprehend the presence and the power and the love of God. I bow my knees before the Father, verse 14. Verse 18, that you. Now, I put this in brackets because... As a side note, this entire prayer, this entire passage in the original text, in the Greek, is two sentences. So, you know, translators have labored to smooth out the, the whole prayer section, which is one sentence. Um, and so, some English translations, I think this very clear, I pray that, I pray that, I pray that structure is lost. But in the Greek, the, the word that is right at the beginning of this sentence. So, I've supplied it in brackets if, if, if you're wondering. I bow my knees before the Father, that you may have strength. Now, he's already talked about being strengthened in our inner person, receiving strength through the, the, the presence of the Spirit. But what does he pray for strength for this time? I pray that you may have, that you may have strength to what? To what? To what? To comprehend. To, to, to be aware of. The word here... Um, is a derivative of, uh, of, of a word in the Old Testament that, that has to do with wrestling or grappling. Um, so the idea is that, that we would have strength to really wrap our perception, our understanding, our minds, and our hearts around what is the breadth and length and height and depth. Does anything strike you as curious about that sentence? It doesn't seem complete, right? So Paul's like saying, I pray that you would have strength to comprehend 
and he supplies lots of descriptors, lots of adjectives, but then what? Comprehend what, right? Paul here is referring to God's power. He prayed in verses 16 and 17 that we would be strengthened by His power, that, that we would be rooted and grounded in love, and now here in verses 18 and 19, he's praying that we would have strength to comprehend just the sheer magnitude of God's power, and then he's going to transition to talk about love again. <clears throat> more love, more power in both sections. More love, more power. When I read this and I think like, oh, yes, that I may have strength to comprehend with all the saints, that together we would all comprehend, not just individually, but together all the saints, not just the church he's writing to, but all the saints and all the churches, that we would all comprehend what is the breadth and length and height and depth. I'm thinking like, oh, man, all right, like the breadth, you know, the length, the height, wow, like this three-dimensional picture of God's power and then like just as the kicker, you know, as if to emphasize the utter magnitude, the, the majesty of God's power, the unfathomable nature of it, he throws in a fourth dimension, you know, and like my brain starts to hurt when I try to read and think about it. Like, all right, breadth, length, height, and also depth. His point here is just very simply that God's power is incomparably great. It's incomparably great. There's no person, there's no nation state, there's no group of people, there's no spiritual forces who have power that's remotely comparable to the power of our God. And as we live the Christian life, as we seek to walk empowered by Him, we can't really do that confidently unless we have a real solid confidence that His power is utterly unfathomable, that it's incomparable, that there's none like it. And so we can have confidence as we, as we have strength to comprehend the sheer magnitude of His power that, you know what, if powerful forces of darkness oppose us, let them oppose us because we stand on the power of God to which there is no comparison. It is deep, it is majestic, it is unparalleled, it is, it is incomparably great. So he prays that we would have strength to comprehend, to experience, to know, to have an awareness of God's power as we live this Christian life, but not just have strength to comprehend just the sheer glory and majesty and supremacy of God's power, but also in verse 9, and to what? What's the verb he uses in verse 19? And to what? To know. Again, emphasizing our experience, apprehension, awareness, understanding that we may comprehend His power, but also know the love of Christ which surpasses all understanding. The love it's interesting. He says, you know, the love of Christ which surpasses all understanding. I pray that you would know something <laughs> that is beyond knowing. You see that? He almost says, it says, he says something that's like oxymoronic. It, it's almost contradictory. I pray that you would know that which can't even really be known, that which surpasses knowledge. And his point here, of course, is not that we, we can't know 
the love of Christ because it's unknowable. No, no, no. Rather, his point is that the love of Christ is so great, it is a well so deep that you can never, ever, ever come close to knowing the full extent of it. It's inexhaustible. You cannot out-sin God's love. You cannot out-fail God's love. You cannot, you cannot run that tap dry. It's inexhaustible. It's, it's fullness, it's depth, it's beyond our comprehension. It's beyond our wildest imaginations. You know, maybe your life has been marked by a particular struggle. Maybe you struggle with depression. Maybe you struggle with sexual addiction. Maybe you struggle with alcohol. You know, we struggle with all kinds of things, don't we? Here's the thing. You can never outstruggle God's love. His love is unfathomably deep. It is inexhaustible. It is a tap that never runs dry. You can't outsin His love. You can't run out of His love. It's always and fully available. It's a source that never runs dry. And so, Paul, from this posture of humility, prays that we would receive power from God, that we would be rooted and established in love, but also that we would have an awareness of God, that we would have strength to comprehend His power, and that we would know the love of Jesus that surpasses all understanding, that we could never know the full extent of. Do you think that if we truly lived our lives day to day, cherishing these truths in our heart, that, that it would help us walk more closely and faithfully with Him? That's precisely, Paul knows that. He knows so. He's praying that we will have a greater experience and awareness and filling of these things because we need them to follow Him. And here's the thing. God is faithful and He is gracious and He is good and He is generous and He gives it all freely. And like Paul, all we need to do is ask. All we need to do is ask to trust. And so, we receive power from God. We have an awareness of God. But Paul's final request in verse, the second half of verse 19, I bow my knees before the Father that you may be filled, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. That's a beautiful expression. I also wonder, what does it mean? Well, there is a sense in which it's kind of a summary. It's, it's an encapsulation of everything that he's just said in the first two prayer requests. Um, to be filled with all the fullness of God is to be full of His power. That It, it is for Christ to, to dwell in our hearts more and more fully by faith. It is to be rooted and grounded in love. It is to be full of the Spirit. And by the way, it's no coincidence Paul prays for these things. He's, he's going to talk about how we live it all out in the next three chapters. So this prayer prepares us for how to live but that's what it is to be filled. It's a summary of everything he said about the power of God in being aware of God, that we may be filled with the fullness of God, that, that, that our proximity to Christ, that our affection for Christ, that our saturation in His love, that our 
filling with God's power through the Spirit in our inner person, all these things would give rise to a great sense of the divine presence within us, that we would be filled. You see, when Paul talks about being filled with the fullness of God, it's from being filled with the fullness of God, it is from that place that he can write something like he does in Philippians chapter 3. It's from that overflowing fullness of God that he can say that I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. There's a surpassing worth of knowing Him. Not just about, not just knowing Him, but knowing Him. Being with Him, following Him, loving Him, being loved by Him. I count everything else as lost compared to the surpassing worth of that It's from the fullness of God and experiencing and knowing and functioning from that place that Paul can say, for his sake, I've suffered the loss of all things. I count them as rubbish. Literally, the word is skoula in the Greek. It means refuse. I count my education, my credentials, my possessions, my life, everything that we labor to accumulate and to build up in this earthly existence, I consider it all as excrement, as as garbage as refuse, because it cannot compare to the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. When you can say something like that from the deepest recesses of your heart, you know that you are experiencing that you are filled with the fullness of God. Is that a beautiful picture? It's like Paul is this great big gospel bucket, you know? And he's been filled up, and he's just overflowing. And he's praying that we, as gospel buckets, would be filled up and that we would likewise be overflowing. You can see that Christ has made his dwelling place in Paul's heart, that he's interior decorated every room. You know, he's arranged things the way he wants them, that Christ has authority in, in Paul's heart. Why don't we experience the fullness of God? I think that we often don't experience the fullness of God because we function as gospel buckets and we drill holes in the bottom of our bucket. We drill holes in the bottom when we focus and set our hearts on the things of this world, whether they're sinful or whether they're good things. It's a good thing to have a a career and to work hard, but when we take that good thing and we make that an ultimate thing, that's called idolatry, and that's the functional equivalent of drilling a hole in the bottom of your bucket. Guys, after our wives and children are asleep, when we're up late watching things on our computers or our devices that are inappropriate for a Christian, we bring sinful things into Christ's dwelling place. It's a functional equivalent of drilling a hole in the bottom of a gospel bucket. So, there's lots of ways in which we sin, which we don't keep our eyes fixed on eternal things. We don't keep our eyes fixed on Christ. We allow ourselves, our perception to be dominated by our present circumstances, by our pursuits in life. All these things, some are sinful, some are good, but there's all these different ways in which we drill holes in our buckets and we don't experience the fullness of God. You want to know the good news? You want to know the good news? The good news is that Christ's love is inexhaustible. His forgiveness is unmerited and it's always available. And so He patches those buckets when we come to Him on our knees like Paul. He patches those holes. He, he closes off 
those buckets, and God is always willing and available to fill us back up. Humility before God, power from God, awareness of God, experiencing the fullness of God, and Paul now concludes this passage by giving glory to God. He says in verse 20, now, signaling a transition, to Him who is able. I want you to notice the beginning of verse 20 and the beginning of verse 21. Paul says, to Him, to Him, to Him who is able, to Him be the glory. You see, God calls us out of darkness into light. God makes us His people. God redeems us despite ourselves, not necessarily primarily for ourselves, but primarily for the fame of His name, primarily for His glory. And that is why Paul concludes this prayer of intercession for these Christians, this prayer which is very powerful, which is very beautiful, which is very majestic, by giving glory to God. Now, to Him who is able, to Him who is powerful, to Him who is capable… We need to believe that God is able to fill us in this life. If you do not believe that, you're dead in the water. If you do not believe that, you do not truly believe the gospel. God is able, he says. To him who is able, to him be the glory. To him who is able to do far more abundantly than we ask or think. We could not, we can't even be, we we are not capable of asking for all that he can do for us. We can't even wrap our minds, our hearts around, around it such that we could ask. And, and, and exhaust that. To him who is able to do far more abundantly than we ask or think, according to the power, his power at work within us. Church, his power is at work within us. Is that good news? And we can ask him that we be filled with more power to be at work within us. Is that good news? But it's not so that we can have our best life now, it's so that we could bring him glory, so that we could bring him pleasure. To Him who is able, to Him be glory in the church, to Him be glory in us, in our gathering, in our relating, in our loving, in our living together, in our gospel witness, in our presence here on this corner, in the South Bay, where He has strategically planted us to be a light on the hill. To Him be glory in the church, and of course, to Him be glory in Christ Jesus. And not just to Him be glory 2,000 years ago when Christ was raised and when He appeared and we, when He converted Paul and when the early church exploded. Not just that He would be glorified 500 years ago in the Protestant Reformation, but that He would be glorified today in us, through us, through walking with His Son. That He would be glorified through all generations forever and ever Amen. Amen. I'm going to pray in just a moment, and I'm going to invite you to come receive the communion elements, and I'm going to lead us in communion. But I want to leave you with this quote. And this is a quote from an old hymn, and it was prayed, it was prayed by a man named Hudson Taylor, who was a a British Protestant missionary to China. And it's been said of him that no other missionary in the 19th, in the 19th century since the Apostle Paul has had a wider vision and has carried out a more systematized plan of evangelizing a broad geographical area than Hudson Taylor. Hudson Taylor was a missionary to China. He gave his life up from that place of, of overflowing to bring the gospel to the people of China. And every single day, Hudson Taylor kept this prayer in his breast pocket And I just want to ask you to close your eyes and to listen to these words and to prepare your hearts for communion. Hudson Taylor said, every single day, 
This was his prayer. O Jesus, make thyself to me a living, bright reality. O Jesus, make thyself to me a living, bright reality. Heavenly Father, we thank You for Your Word, which is good, which is encouraging, which is life-giving. I pray, we pray that it has given us life this morning, that it has encouraged our hearts, that it has built us up as Your people for Your purposes. Jesus, we approach the communion table now remembering that all that has been done on our behalf is made possible by Your atoning death on the cross on our behalf. We love you, Jesus, and we approach this moment remembering you. We pray in your name. Amen.